Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. Would you say from experience that this girl's life is in danger now? I can only interpret what's on that tape. And the fact that that girl has now been away from her own home for over 24 hours, that she was taken or left her home with only one garment, and that was the dressing gown that she had on. What sort of a man is it do you think you're looking for? Uh, Well, he's a fellow that uh, is so cunning and uh, is so devious, he could have possible connections in many fields. But he seems to be having his share of luck. Oh, he's the devil's advocate. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 23 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a three-part case. The second instalment will be available in four days. Eiley is a village built along the banks of the River Severn in Shropshire. Previously a mining area, the collieries closed in 1969, the village became a market town. In 1975 the population was small, around 3,000 residents. Among them was 17-year-old Leslie Whittle and her mother Dorothy Walker. Leslie's father, George, was the owner of a transport company, Whittle Coaches. After his death in 1970, the true nature of his relationship with Leslie's mother, Dorothy, became public. George Whittle had been married to a woman called Selina for 15 years when he began an affair with Dorothy. After Selina discovered what her husband had done in 1941, she left him, but refused to grant him a divorce. George and Dorothy continued their relationship and had a son, Ronald, in 1943, and Leslie was born in 1957. Although Selina did not agree to divorce George, he paid her £2 per week in a separation agreement but he did not disclose the success of his transport business. To avoid a large tax bill, George Whittle had given Dorothy and his children gifts worth tens of thousands of pounds. He would also leave them a substantial amount of money in his will. 
as the profits of Whittle coaches had grown. Stories of the company's success were published in numerous articles, and George's wealth became common knowledge. This information eventually got back to his estranged wife, Selena, and she filed a civil lawsuit, hoping to get a large portion of the money George had secreted away. In 1972, the case went as far as the High Court, and it was revealed that George had left £300,000 to Dorothy and his children, and nothing to his widow. It's worth bearing in mind that £300,000 50 years ago is just over £3 million in today's money. The dispute was not over a small amount, and Selena was somewhat successful in her attempts to obtain what she thought she was owed, when a judge ordered that she be paid £30 a week and a lump sum of £3,000. Speaking with the Coventry Evening Telegraph after the verdict, Selina explained that life had been difficult for her, living on a minimal amount of money after she left. Describing how she felt about George Whittle, Selina said, I loved him very much. Then the other woman came into his life, and I left. I would have divorced him if it hadn't been for the fact that the woman knew George was a married man. It's been a long time to be on my own all these years, but now I feel I've got what I deserved. Selena said she would use the money to go on a Mediterranean cruise, telling the Telegraph reporter, It's something I've dreamed of just to be able to put my feet up and soak up all that lovely sunshine. Of course, I won't just fritter the money away. What is left I will put away in a safe place. The case against George Whittle's estate was well reported in the media, along with his financial matters. His daughter Leslie had been left a considerable sum in a trust fund, which was available when she turned 21. On the evening of Monday, January 13th, 1975, Leslie Whittle was staying at Beechcroft, the home she shared with her mother on Hiley's Main Street. Leslie was in her second year at Wolfram College of Further Education in Wolverhampton, studying for her A-levels. Her mother Dorothy was out for the evening, and when she returned to the stately detached home shortly before 1.30am, she checked on Leslie, who was fast asleep in her bedroom. Dorothy then took a sleeping tablet, as she did most evenings, and fell soundly to sleep. When Dorothy awoke the following morning, she noticed that Leslie had not come out of her bedroom, so Dorothy made a bowl of cereal and went to rouse her daughter. Leslie was not in her bed, so Dorothy rushed to the telephone to call her son Ronald who lived nearby with his wife Gaynor. When she picked up the phone, there was no dial tone so Leslie got in her car to drive to Ronald's home to ask if he had seen his sister. He had not. Gaynor and Dorothy returned to the house and began looking for clues as to where Leslie might have gone so early in the morning. Ronald drove around the village looking for his sister. In the lounge of the home, on top of a box of Turkish delights, Leslie's loved ones would subsequently find lengths of Dymo tape, the type used in a label maker. Instructions had been punched in white letters. They read, No police. £50,000 ransom to be ready to deliver. Wait for telephone call at Swan Shopping Centre telephone box. 6pm to 1am. If no call, Return the following evening. When you answer, give name only and listen. 
you must follow instructions without argument. From time you answer, you are on a time limit. If police or tricks, death. Swan Shopping Centre Kidderminster deliver £50,000 in white van. 50000 in all old notes, 25000 in £1 notes, and 25000 in £5. There will be no exchange. Only after £50,000 has been cleared will victim be released. Dorothy Whittle was horrified and told her son, Ronald. He was in a panic. Ronald did not heed the kidnapper's warning not to contact the police and immediately reported the abduction to the West Mercia Constabulary. Detective Chief Superintendent Robert Booth, the lead CID officer for the force, was sent to investigate. Officers determined that the phone line had been cut and the only items missing from the home were Leslie's blue dressing gown and a pair of slippers. Investigators believe someone had entered the property through an unlocked door in the garage. Two sets of footprints were seen close by, leading the detectives to believe that more than one person had kidnapped Leslie. Neighbours were told there had been a break-in so as not to cause any unnecessary panic. The police would learn two witnesses reported seeing a car coming from the direction of the house, with the vehicle's full beams on as if to obstruct the view of prying eyes. This was around 5am that morning. Other neighbours reported seeing a saloon car parked behind the house in the early hours. Fearful that media reports would endanger Leslie's life, Detective Chief Superintendent Booth ordered the investigation to be conducted as quietly as possible. However, journalists were quick to notice the increased police activity around the home. Ronald Whittle had last spoken to his sister at around 10.15 on the night before she was discovered missing. He said, I had just made a bookcase for her as a Christmas present and had only just finished it, and we were laughing and joking on the telephone. It's so hard to believe that a few hours after our conversation, something like this could have happened. I couldn't believe it when my mother told me that Leslie was not in her room. I thought at first she had simply taken an earlier bus to college, but when my mother discovered that none of her clothes were missing, we started to get worried. Leslie was definitely in her room at 1.30am when my mother came home from a social function. My mother always popped her head round the bedroom door to make sure Leslie was in. I cannot think of why anyone would want to do this thing. I know people say that you are bound to make enemies sometime, but I honestly cannot think of anyone who holds any grudge against any of the family. Officers from Scotland Yard were called in to assist in the investigation. They set up surveillance equipment on the Whittles' home phone. Arrangements were also made for an officer to monitor any calls placed to telephone boxes at the Swan Shopping Centre in Kidderminster. £50,000 in the instructed values of £1 and £5 notes was withdrawn from the Whittles' bank account and placed into a suitcase. Ronald Whittle was chosen to be the one to go to the phone box at the agreed time, but as he arrived and waited for the phone to ring, a breaking news bulletin was reported about the kidnapping of the young heiress. A journalist had broken the story after being tipped off by a Whittle employee. The police knew it would not be long until the kidnapper realised the authorities were involved. When cars started to arrive at the Swan Shopping Centre and people began watching Ronald Whittle in the phone box, 
the officer supervising the scene decided to abandon the arrangement and told Ronald to go home. Investigators knew that the news leak could prove fatal, but a miscommunication meant that some of the detectives were not informed that Ronald had been pulled away from the phone boxes. The officer who was monitoring the calls noted that they had all rung at around midnight, but no one answered. They had missed the kidnapper's call. The following day, Wednesday, January 15th, Ronald Whittle and DCS Booth attended a press conference to discuss the case. They hoped the kidnapper was listening, as the family intended to pay the ransom. Leslie Whittle was described as being just 4 feet 11 inches to 5 feet tall, with a slim build, brown eyes and brown shoulder-length hair. The most important thing is that we want Leslie back. We will do whatever is required. We want the kidnappers to get in touch with me uh, and I will, after receiving reasonable proof that they are who they say they are, I will do whatever is reasonable to get Leslie back. That is the important thing as far as we're concerned. You're still prepared to pay over the £50,000 as soon as you possibly can? Naturally. The police had initially investigated whether the kidnapping was a prank by students at Leslie's College, or if she had been involved in a scheme with her boyfriend who was a Sheffield University student. However, it was determined to be a genuine abduction that the police were taking very seriously. DCS Booth told those in attendance, The house is a detached one and there are indications that some interference may have taken place with one door. There are also indications from our inquiries that one door might unaccountably have been left unlocked. There are all important things which will have to be explored to satisfy ourselves as to why this girl left the house, whether it was of her own volition, whether there was a threat used, or whether there was some ruse to get her outside the house. As far as we are concerned at the moment, there is no reasonable explanation as to why this girl left the house. Ronald Whittle also addressed reporters, saying, As long as we get Leslie back, I don't care. We met the kidnappers' instructions last night, and we will meet them again. We are hoping for a phone call, but so far we have had no further contact with the kidnapper since the original note. We were prepared to pay the money. We want to get Leslie back in good health like any other family would. We are very desperate to see her home and safe. Mr Whittle, did you decide straight away that you would pay up, you would pay the ransom? Yes. The thing is that... Uh... It's always possible, you know, that uh, without the money, she may not get home safely, and we, you know, we think this is our best way of possibly doing so. Ronald Whittle was asked about the lawsuit brought by his father's estranged wife in 1972. He admitted it could have drawn George's fortune to the kidnapper's attention. Quote, Just after the court case, we had one anonymous abusive letter. There was no demand for money or mention of the kidnapping. I don't like to think it's local people. I just have no clue if there is even one or more involved in the kidnap. We have no enemies that we know of. DCS Booth chastised the media for releasing information about the kidnapping, voicing his frustration that Leslie's safety was at risk. I felt that any release might well jeopardise those arrangements, and I am not too happy that someone saw fit to release the activities police were involved in. If I find out who it is who leaked the information, and if it is a policeman, he will never stop jumping. I will tell you that. Ronald Whittle travelled to the phone boxes again that night, as the ransom note had instructed them to return the following evening. 
Journalists and photographers stood in plain view, desperate for an interview or a shot of Ronald speaking to the kidnapper. Unsurprisingly, with all the attention, the phone box remained silent, but the shrill ring of the phone echoed through the Whittles' home. The man on the line demanded that the ransom money be taken to Gloucester, over 50 miles away and left in a subway. Tragically, as it turned out, the caller was a fraud trying to profit from the Whittles' desperation. It was one of many hoax callers who had wasted police resources and detracted from the urgent situation at hand. The following evening, Thursday, January 16th, another call was received at the Whittle Coach's transport office by the manager, Leonard Rudd. This time it was a female voice. Leslie Whittle was heard on the other end of the line. Mommy, it's going to keep going to the post office on the phone box. The instructions are inside. I'm okay, but there will be no police and no tricks, okay? Leonard Rudd tried to ask Leslie questions, but when Leslie did not respond, Rudd realised it was a recorded message. Ronald Whittle was prepared to make the 50-mile journey to Kidsgrove with a radio transmitter to allow him to communicate with surveillance officers from Scotland Yard. They did not want the kidnapper to know that the police were involved this time. Scotland Yard investigators also spent over an hour microfilming each banknote so they could trace them once the ransom was delivered. Ronald was late arriving at the phone box in Kidsgrove, and it took time to find the instructions, which were taped behind a backboard. Once he retrieved them, he followed directions that told him to drive along Boathouse Road and into a car park. There he was to travel alongside a low wall, before stopping and flashing his headlights. He would then see a flashing light which he was to run to and follow the instructions beside it. Ronald Whittle did as he was instructed, driving to where he thought he should be, but frustratingly after an hour, Ronald did not see any lights and the ransom drop was abandoned. He had been directed to Bathpool Park in Kidsgrove, but searching the park would alert the kidnapper to the police's involvement, so Scotland Yard officers discreetly combed the area the following day, while Ronald Whittle and DCS Booth again spoke to the media. Detective Chief Superintendent Booth told the crowd of reporters, I'm certain that threats were used to take her from that house. I base this statement on facts. Fact that the house bore signs of forcible entry. Fact that it bore signs of an intruder or intruders. Fact that a car seen parked behind the house has not been traced. And fact that there were two sets of footmarks outside the house in the grounds. This confirms my belief that the girl is in the hands of very dangerous people. There is a bond of affection between this girl, her mother and her brother. There is every reason to believe that she would not, under any circumstances, have subjected either of them to this terrible ordeal. Ronald Whittle asked for the kidnappers to make contact and promised that he would meet them alone without any police surveillance, though he also said, There is no question of me going out. No money will be handed over until I am satisfied that they have Leslie and that she is safe. In response to Ronald's assertion that he would meet the kidnappers without police surveillance, DCS Booth went on to say, Mr Whittle is exercising his right in going alone. (laughs) 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As news of the abduction spread... Locals spoke about what little they knew of Leslie Whittle. She had attended Adcott Old Girls Boarding School in Shropshire and only returned to Highley during the holidays. Describing how they saw Leslie, a neighbour said, She is an intelligent, shy and quiet girl who knows few people in the village because she spends little time there. She is just not one of the villagers. Many of her friends at Wolfram College had no idea that she was an heiress, awaiting thousands of pounds that were being held in a trust. Stephen Kibble, who knew Leslie from classes, spoke to the Birmingham Evening Mail. She wore jeans and that sort of thing, and never more expensive jewellery. She just looked like any other girl at the college. I didn't know, and as far as I know, nobody else did, that Leslie was wealthy. Leslie's boyfriend, Richard Forder, who had attended Wolfram the previous year before leaving for Sheffield, believed she had plans to study there once she completed her A-levels. Leslie had spent the weekend before her abduction with her boyfriend and had left his house to go to college on Monday morning. Richard Forder was interviewed by the police almost immediately after officers suspected that the young couple could have eloped. They had been together for little over a year. The theory was quickly dismissed. Richard's father spoke with the Birmingham Post after Richard had returned home from college, saying, My son said he had told the police everything he knows. He is very upset. I tried to convince him not to come back because there was nothing he could do. The following day, Richard Forder addressed reporters and issued an appeal to the people responsible for the abduction to contact him. The kidnapper's message will get back to the Whittle family as fast as I can pass it on. I am very worried about Leslie's safety. We should have heard something from the kidnappers by now. She's not the sort of girl who would go off on her own like this. This all seems unreal. I still keep pinching myself. Richard said he planned to stay at home until there was more news on the case, but the kidnappers had gone silent. 
as the investigation entered the fifth day. DCS Booth voiced his fear that silence indicated the situation was becoming graver. Detective Booth said he had strongly recommended to Ronald Whittle that he should not pay the ransom, but he was not considering Booth's advice. Without any further contact from the kidnappers, Scotland Yard detectives joined the West Mercia police on searches across the area of Highley. The railway line from Bewdley to Bridge North was also combed by police teams with sniffer dogs, and house-to-house inquiries continued throughout the neighbouring villages in Shropshire. The students at Leslie's College were interviewed in an attempt to discover if she had been concealing anything about an association with someone who knew about the family's financial status, but it seemed as though Leslie had not even revealed her circumstances to close friends. After a week of searching and four days without contact, the police turned their attention to local rivers. They began speculating that Leslie may have been killed and her body dumped once the media reported on the police involvement in the case. Oak's calls continued to plague the investigators and the Whittle family, with several people charged with menacing as they tried to extort money from Leslie's loved ones. Moreover, an anonymous letter sent to a newspaper room led the police to search a small hamlet within 50 miles of Highley, but no sign of Leslie was found. To dispel rumours that the family were incredibly wealthy, Ronald Whittle revealed that the majority of the funds were tied up in the transport business as shares. On Thursday, January 23rd, a week since the kidnapper or kidnappers last made contact, Dorothy Whittle spoke to a reporter for the Birmingham Evening Mail. She had spent every moment since Leslie's kidnapping next to a telephone, awaiting a call or news about her daughter. In the interview, Dorothy said, The longer this silence goes on, the more frightening it gets. I have now come to accept that Leslie might already be dead. I pray and pray that she is still all right, but if the worst has happened, I appeal to whoever is responsible to let us know somehow. If she is dead, I've got to know sometime. The worst part of all of this is the waiting and feeling so helpless. We're in these people's hands. We can only plead with them to end our misery one way or the other. I'm scared to get more than a few feet from the phone. Every time it rings I jump, hoping that it is the call we are waiting for. I appeal to whoever is holding Leslie to get in touch somehow. If they are frightened to telephone, there are other ways of contacting us. If they would just let Leslie write a letter or send a tape recording, as long as it contains some reference to the date or current news item, anything to prove that she is still alive, the £50,000 is available. We are waiting to hand over the money. So why don't they contact us? That same day, a discovery was made in a car park near Dudley Zoo, around 25 miles northeast of Leslie's home. An abandoned Morris 1300 was found with false license plates. When it was searched, the police found a torch, a rope, numbered envelopes, and a cassette tape. The tape included a recording of Leslie Whittle's voice, in which she gave instructions to go to Junction 10 on the M6 North and then on to the A454. Now, down to the M6 North to Junction 10 and on to the A454 towards Warsaw. 
Leslie went on to say, There's no need to worry, Mum. I'm okay. I got a bit wet, but I'm quite dry now. I'm being treated very well. The envelopes left inside the abandoned car contained strips of Dymo tape, laying the trail for where to drop the money. Investigators followed the instructions, which brought them to a freight liner railway depot where another piece of tape was found tacked to a lamppost. It instructed them to cross into the Dudley Zoo car park. The detectives quickly realised why the details of this trail had not been communicated to the Whittles. The kidnapper had been interrupted while he was hiding the clues eight days earlier. It was discovered that the Morris 1300 had been abandoned a week earlier after a security guard at a nearby goods depot was shot when confronting a man who was acting suspiciously. 45-year-old Gerald Smith was guarding the Dudley Freightliner terminal. On the night of Wednesday, January 15th, while the Whittles waited for a second call at the phone box near the shopping centre, Gerald Smith saw a man in the car park across from the depot. Gerald asked him what he was doing, and unsatisfied with the man's response, he told him that he was going to call the police. As Gerald turned to walk away, he was caught off guard by a searing pain. He had been shot in the back twice. When he fell to the ground and turned around, Shooter continued to fire five more rounds hitting him in the shoulder, stomach and hand. The gunman walked over to Gerald and aimed the gun at his head, but when he pulled the trigger there was just a clicking sound. He had run out of bullets. The man fled into the shadows, leaving the security guard lying in a pool of his own blood on the ground. With remarkable strength, considering the extent of his injuries, Gerald Smith managed to stumble across the depot and alert a colleague who quickly called for help. He was rushed to the hospital, where he underwent emergency surgery. He had to have part of his kidney and liver removed. Amazingly, Gerald survived. If there had been any bullets left in the gun he would not have been so lucky. The security guard was able to give the West Midlands police a description of the shooter. A white man aged between 30 and 40 years old, around 5 feet 6 inches tall, with a medium build. He was dressed in a dark raincoat and a flat cap. This information was passed to the West Mercia Constabulary. A composite sketch was made and widely distributed in an attempt to find the gunman, but the results of ballistic tests brought a troubling revelation. The gun used to shoot Gerald Smith was determined to be the same weapon employed by a notorious thief and murderer. They had targeted post offices during the winter months of the past few years. In the early hours of February 16, 1972, Leslie Richardson, the postmaster of a sub-post office in Haywood, Lancashire, was startled awake to find a man standing by his bedside. His face was obstructed from view by a hood, but Leslie could clearly see a shotgun in the man's hands. Speaking with what Leslie believed to be a West Indies accent, the armed intruder ordered him to get the money from the post office. However, undeterred by the firearm, the postmaster tried to fight the man off, and as he did, the shotgun fired through the ceiling and the intruder's hood came off. Before the attacker fled, 
Leslie Richardson managed to catch a glimpse of a white man with dark hair. It was clear the intruder was using a fake accent. There had been at least five similar break-ins across the northeast in the winter months of the previous three years. In four of those cases, the occupants of the sub-post offices were woken up, restrained, and forced to hand over the keys to the safe. In each instance, the intruder gained entry to the property by drilling holes in the window frames and climbing inside. After a photo fit was circulated, the break-in seemed to decrease in frequency. But two years later, another sub-post office was broken into, and the person responsible stole more than just money. At around 5am on February 15, 1974, 18-year-old Richard Skepper was awoken by a masked intruder brandishing a shotgun. The man had drilled holes into a basement window on the ground floor of the house belonging to his father Donald, the postmaster at a sub-post office in New Park, Harrogate in Yorkshire. Wearing all black clothing and a black hood, the gunman bound Richard's wrists together secured his ankles to the bedposts and taped his mouth shut. Speaking in a low voice, the man asked Richard where his father had kept the keys to the safe. After the tape was removed from his mouth, Richard said the keys were in a cupboard at the foot of the stairs. The intruder then removed the binds and forced Richard downstairs in search of the keys. However, they could not find them, so the gunman led Richard towards his sleeping parents in the next room. Donald and Joanna Skepper had slept through the break-in, but once the gunman and Richard entered their room, Joanna woke up. Seconds later, Donald sat up and switched on the bedside lamp. In the doorway, he saw his son standing next to a slim figure dressed in black, concealing everything apart from his eyes, which were visible through two holes crudely cut in a hood. Donald asked the man what he wanted, and he was told to turn off the light. Richard said they needed to give him the keys to the safe, but Donald suddenly swung his legs out of bed and called out, Let's get him! The intruder immediately aimed the shotgun at Donald Skepper and pulled the trigger. The bullet hit Donald in the chest, sending him back onto the bed where his wife was frozen in terror. Describing what happened, Joanna later said, It was horrifying. If it was someone you could have seen the face of, or someone you could have spoken to reasonably, but just to see the hood was really terrifying, so much so that I really couldn't move. As Richard ran for help, his father Donald Skepper bled to death next to his distraught wife. Donald Skepper had been a pilot during the war, before he started managing the sub-post office and corner shop in Harrogate. He left behind three children. The West Yorkshire CID immediately dispatched over 100 officers to track down the killer, who was described as looking like a dark shadow. Roadblocks were established to prevent any escape, but the man had vanished. Within weeks, the post office ordered a £5,000 reward for information about the murder, but there were no leads. Calls for more security for sub-postmasters came in the wake of the shocking theft and shooting of Donald Skepper. Just seven months after Donald's death, the need for more protection became devastatingly apparent.
It was 4am on the night of September 6, 1974, in Higher Baxander near Accrington, Lancashire. Sub-postmaster Derek Astin heard something that caused him to stir. He was lying in bed in his flat, a property positioned over the local post office. A man dressed in black with a hood covering his face had gained entry to the property by releasing the catch on the rear living room window. When Derek saw the man standing in the doorway of his bedroom, he immediately leapt up and pushed him out of the room into the bathroom. The commotion woke his wife Marion and their children, 14-year-old Susan and 10-year-old Stephen. Young Stephen stood in shock as his father grappled with the intruder on the landing. The man was armed with a shotgun. Derek was recovering from leg surgery at the time, but managed to keep the intruder away from his family. As Marion tried to hand her husband a hoover to hit the attacker, the gunman shot Derek in the shoulder. In the struggle, the intruder was pushed down the stairs and Derek lay bleeding profusely. Marion tried to console him by telling Derek, don't worry, it's only your arm, but she did not realise that Derek had been shot twice. Within seconds of landing at the bottom of the stairs, the gunman escaped through the same rear window he had entered through. Marion tried to phone for help, but the lines had been cut. Derek's teenage daughter Susan tried to stop the bleeding from her father's wound by wrapping a bedsheet around his shoulder, while Marion ran to alert her next-door neighbour, Bert Taylor. Bert later said, We went into the post office. I saw Mr. Astin lying at the top of the stairs with a terrible wound in his left shoulder. The couple's bedroom was full of pellets. The children told me they had seen a man all dressed in black. Derek Astin was rushed to Accrington Hospital, but he had sustained massive blood loss from an artery in his arm and died before he reached the emergency room. Investigators at the scene were able to link the shotgun cartridges to the gun used in Donald Skepper's murder. Voicing his belief that the attacks were likely carried out by the same man, Detective Chief Superintendent Joe Mounsey with the Lancashire Police said, In each the assailant was a masked man and guns were used. There are similarities in the methods used which would make it foolish to ignore the possibility of the offences being connected. Leslie Whittle was still missing, and brazen attacks on post office staff had been carried out. Officers across multiple constabularies still had a long way to go before they caught the culprit. The search for Leslie Whittle and her kidnapper is being coordinated from police headquarters at Dudley in Worcestershire. 350 detectives are working on the case, painstakingly sifting through statements taken from thousands of doorstep interviews. In the main incidents room, the telephones ring 24 hours a day, with calls from people who believe they've seen the gunman who's holding Leslie hostage. But almost a month to the day since Leslie's disappearance, police are still waiting for the one breakthrough that will lead them to her. This is the end of episode 23. The second instalment in this three-part case will be available in four days. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.